With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the 115th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, so then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners everywhere out there in the world. I sincerely appreciate you in all the now 80-plus countries where you're located. And thank you for sending all your messages. Please keep them coming. My September Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of August. Sign up for them by going to privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. They are free, as they've always been since 2005. For many years now, I've been doing the research for and authoring the IONS Quarterly Security, Privacy, and Compliance Laws Update Reports. And one of the topics I cover in each issue that I've always found fascinating, and I just love looking into these things, is looking at how many bills at the U.S. federal level are proposed each quarter that mention and impact privacy in some way, either positively or negatively, and the topics, areas that they cover. So, for example, to just give you what I've been seeing as a trend, in the second quarter of this year, 2023, there were at least 148 bills introduced by federal lawmakers that were either wholly about privacy or included privacy protections or degradations or considerations as part of the bills. Now, this was a 37% increase from the second quarter of 2023, which had at least 108 bills introduced by federal lawmakers, you know, about, again, privacy that were either impacting privacy completely about it or actually degrading privacy in some way. And that was a 277% increase from the fourth quarter of 2022. So, you know, I hope this kind of demonstrates how privacy regulation initiatives 
are increasing at the federal level and in many different ways for many different topics. But they are also increasing at the state level. I've always wondered about the process of creating privacy laws in the state. So, you know, I, I think is getting a bill passed at the state level like that fabulous old schoolhouse rock song, I'm Just a Bill. <laughs> Hopefully some of you know what I'm talking about. If not, just Google it and you'll find a really cool video on uh, online. And does creating a privacy law and getting a bill written and so on, does that include a lot of sausage making? Um, well, today I have the perfect guest to discuss the process of getting a new privacy law enacted at the state level because he has accomplished this. Tom Kemp is a Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur, investor, and policy advisor. Tom is also the author of the newly published book containing big tech, how to protect our civil rights, economy, and democracy. Tom was the founder and CEO of Centrify, a leading cybersecurity cloud provider that amassed clients from over 60% of the Fortune 50. For his leadership, Tom was named by Ernst & Young as finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year in Northern California. Tom Kemp is currently a very active angel investor with investments in over 15 tech startups. See a lot more about Tom Kemp in his bio on my data security and privacy show page on the Voice America website. Tom, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm really excited to speak with you about this topic because, I mean, getting a law passed, that is quite a, an accomplishment. But before we get to that point, I, when I hear people who do these types of accomplishments, have these types of accomplishments, I wonder, how did they get to this point in their career? And I know my listeners, who is, my listeners are very diverse of all ages and public in the you know, just private citizens and also in organizations. I'm wondering if you could provide our listeners with a brief background of your professional career. You know, where did you get started and what was the path that brought you to working with privacy in your career? Yeah, so I started in Silicon Valley and started working at uh, a large company, Oracle. Then I joined some tech startups and then over time, I worked my way up the ranks. And as you mentioned, I my last job, I co-founded and was CEO of a cybersecurity company. And after that company got acquired, I had some time to take off. And, you know, cybersecurity is all about protecting data. But I was very interested in privacy because that's really about the governance of, of personal information. And they're, they overlap. They're not the same. And so I decided to really start digging into privacy and, and actually, you know, reading GDPR, the Europeans' law, um, you know, figuring out what's going on in California. And that led me to just doing a lot of research, writing a lot of blogs. 
Uh, and then eventually I connected with uh, a person, Alistair McTaggart, who had this initiative on the ballot in 2020 called Prop 24, the California Privacy Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And I became a full-time volunteer. This was during COVID. I wanted mm-hmm. to do something, and and I, I started doing that. And then, and then that's kind of got me the bug to work in public policy. So I advised a group in Texas to, to pass a privacy law that passed this year. So I, Prop 24 passed. So that's a, that's a win there. Uh, I got this bill down in Texas for a data broker registry law passed. Uh, and then um, last year, I tried a bill in California. It got killed. And then currently, I have a uh, California Senate bill, SB 362, the California Delete Act, that's working its way through the uh, state assembly right now, having passed the Senate. So, yeah, so I've definitely rolled up my sleeves and uh, really fully engaged on trying to give people like you and me and, and your listeners more privacy rights uh, in California and beyond. Well, that's so important, especially since California has been a leader in privacy laws for a long time. I mean, I've been working in the the privacy space for a very long time, and I know uh, way back at the beginning of the 2000s, I actually started helping with SB 1386, which you probably recognize as being the first uh, state breach notice law. and. When it, that came out way back then, oh my gosh, everybody was concerned about it, but they were only concerned if they had customers in California, and we saw how California kind of spawned, you know, what we have is now at least 54 state and territory breach notice laws. So, And there's all these other laws in California. So I'm wondering, I mean, there, there's an art, I think. <laughs> there must be an art in getting a privacy law created in California. So what do you got to do for our listeners who might want to be proactive in getting their own laws that they have an idea for uh, listened to? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's called the California effect um, in that California has historically led the nation in consumer protection. Take automobiles, you know, mm-hmm. automobile safety, emissions, And then California in the early 70s actually added privacy to its state constitution. As you and your listeners know, the word privacy is not in the U.S. Constitution, but it's in the California Constitution. And that has opened up the door for California to innovate uh, and adding privacy laws. And you're right. The data breach notification law is a great example. California was the first state. It only took 15, 20 years later, but finally we hit number 50, right, um, to to add that. And uh, California in 2018 was the first state to add a comprehensive privacy law. We don't have a federal privacy law, but we have a comprehensive privacy law in California, and now it's expanded to 12. And the way that you can do it, it's twofold, is that you can go the legisl- in California, you can go the legislature route, and it's, you're right. It's like schoolhouse rock. It starts mm-hmm. in, the bill starts in one house, needs to work its way up, and then, and then goes to the other house to get signed by the governor. But in California, from the progressive area, we have these things called ballot initiatives, um, and that's actually how Prop 24, the California Privacy Rights Act, 
got passed in 2020. It was on the actual ballot, direct democracy. Um, and so that's another route that you can go. And I can kind of go into the details of the legislative route or the ballot initiative uh, route if you want me to. But those are the two ways that you can actually get a proposal passed into legislation in California. So I guess we don't need to get into great depth about that, but I'm wondering, though, in the difference, are you saying with the ballot initiative then that that law or that bill was not written by state lawmakers? Was that was that written then by like a consumer group or I guess what is that the distinguishing factor between the two ways to get it on the ballot? Yeah, you know, uh, it, 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 in California, um, it's the proposition system. And, uh, you know, the for example, real estate taxes, it was uh, Prop 13 in the, I believe it was in the 70s, that capped real, real estate taxes. And so it turns out it's a very effective way to kind of break gridlock. Um, and you, you do not have to have a legislature you know, or legislators write the actual. You, you could have. I mean, it has to be well written, and right. uh, it, and you 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 put it forth to to the secretary of state, and it has to meet some standards. But the key thing is, is that you have to get signatures. And the interesting thing today, and and I don't know if your listeners know this, but you know, the days of having your friends get clipboards and be at train stations and and organically get people to, to sign something are long gone. It turns out that there are companies that you pay, and you pay them, if you're sponsoring the bill, you know, 5 to $7 per signature. They go out and they get the signatures. In California, the bar is approximately a million signatures are needed uh, to get on the ballot. And that includes the fact that some of the signatures are going to, you know, be found to be invalid, uh, et cetera. So, so the actual right. real number is probably seven hundred or eight hundred thousand. So, to, it's an expensive path if you want to go the ballot initiative route. Just to even get the signatures needed, it'll cost seven million dollars, and that has nothing to do with any legal fees. And then, of course, running the campaign as well. I was very fortunate to work with a group, Californians for Consumer Privacy, that mm-hmm. passed. Prop 24, the California Privacy Rights Act, but that group and the person behind it spent well over $10 million to, to have that happen. Yeah, I, I like that that is an option, though, because one thing frustrating, because, you know, I was, as you were describing that, I was thinking how similar or different it was in other states, and I'm here in Iowa. So in Iowa, it's just the state lawmakers who bring bills, you know, to the floor, right? And so it's like if you have one party who dominates the the law, you know, Congress at the state level, you don't have a chance to get some of these laws, you know, to the floor. I mean, of course, they can be written by the other parties who are in, who are lawmakers, but of there's such partisanship right now that those will never get there. But I like how, even though it's super expensive, as you described, it's nice that uh, consumers have a way, if they can get enough people and enough money behind them, to get that out there without, 
being dependent upon the lawmakers who might be completely opposed to something because of their, you know, donors or whatever that don't want to see that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, we're, at least in California, you know, people say, well, it could, there could be too many ballot initiatives. And oftentimes we'll have some elections where there are, but you got to give the voters some credit, you know, that, that the voters actually, if they see something that is been written by one industry that would, would favor, that's not going to happen. And so we have, it, this all comes from, this ballot initiative comes from the progressive era of the turn of the century. There was a gentleman here, Hiram Johnson, that put the direct democracy to, as a bypass uh, and for and we, we, from a privacy perspective, that was on the ballot in the early seventies to add privacy as an inalienable right. I mean, wasn't that that was amazing that they thought about privacy in the early seventies? And of course, everyone thinks that privacy is so important today in the digital age. They thought about it in the early seventies, and then of course, uh, California passed the most comprehensive privacy law with the CPRA as part of a ballot initiative as well. And let me tell you something. Over 9 million people voted for Prop 24. That's more than the population of 10 U.S. states. That tells you that people want privacy. Consumers want privacy. They want privacy laws. And uh, that's a great example. That passed with 56% of the vote and uh, with over 9 million people saying, we want more privacy. And was that in a general election, or was that a special election to get that passed? No, that was part of the 2020 general election. So, Um, okay, so they didn't hold a separate uh, voting. It wasn't a a separate thing. And I should also point out that 9 million, if you look at total vote counts for any person in any state, this ranks as a top 10 total vote counter with 9.3 million across any state. Uh, wow. as well. And uh, uh, yeah, so it is, there is a huge, if you put privacy, and I, I will have your listeners, you know, if you care and passion about, get your legislature, or if you can go the ballot initiative, because if you put privacy on the ballot, or if, that people will vote yes. And to your point, Rebecca, you know, there are groups that don't want us to have our privacy rights because they want to monetize our data no matter how yes. sensitive that data is. And, and, and I, I feel that we should have privacy rights and they should be easy to exercise. Yes. Well, I think those are excellent points. Do you, do you know if there are other states that allow for having these types of ballot initiatives, like in California? Because, like, I know that we don't have that here in Iowa. If we do, I, it's a secret. <laughs> yeah, there, there are... There are states that allow uh, ballot initiatives. Uh, just recently, Ohio had one about you know changing the threshold for changing ballot oh, initiatives right. on the Constitution. Um, yes. That was issue one. Michigan has one, um, and so there are states that do support um, direct democracy, um, and that worked very well with. Proposition 24 that enhanced California's Consumer Privacy Act, but uh, I, I, you know the current bill that I'm working on, Senate Bill 362, the California Delete Act, 
I sorry, I just don't have ten million dollars <laughs> yeah. to, to put it on the ballot. So I'm working directly with uh, the legislature, and uh, and so that's what I'm working on right now with a currently active bill here in California that uh, that heavily involves uh, giving us even more privacy rights. Yes. Well, I, I have a question about that, but first to back kind of backtrack a little bit to your point about putting privacy in there. I think that's a great idea, but I've seen a disturbing, hopefully it's not a, a long-time trend or will be a long-time trend, but I'm seeing some uh, lawmakers using the word privacy in ways that aren't actually about privacy. And probably because they think if they put that word in there, it will get more votes, which it did, like here in Iowa. And I don't know if you have been following some of our uh, laws here or not, but um, there was a law that they proposed, and they said it was a privacy law, but it actually wasn't. It was um, it was a new law to prevent our state auditor, who is in a different party than all the other state um, the state position holders, you know, at the state level. Um, to prevent the auditor from being able to access the personal data of anyone within an audit that is being performed without the consent of those individuals, those subjects of the audit. And I'm, I was an auditor early on in my career, and I thought, how crazy is that? That's not about privacy. That's obstruction of duty for the auditor. <laughs> if if you are auditing something that involves like misuse of funds, uh, state funds, to ask the person who is a part within the scope of the audit for their permission to you to look at their personal data, and they say no. I mean, I don't know. Are you seeing that in other places, or do you have any thoughts about that? It just seems so. Um, it's just so unethical in a way for them to say this is about privacy because it's not about privacy when it's about keeping an auditor from performing their duties, from my point of view. Yeah, look, um, so I think that uh, it was a shock to especially a lot of the tech industry. who And there's, I mean, obviously a lot of different types of tech companies, but there are certain type of tech companies who simply make money by collecting massive amounts of our personal data and then selling it or use it for advertising. And so when California passed in 2018 and in the original CCPA, they immediately began to try to water it down with the legislature in 2019. They started whacking away at it, and that's why the group and the person behind the CCPA, who helped shepherd it through the legislature, came out with a ballot initiative. And that the ballot initiative, one of the key things that the CPRA in 2020 did with Prop 24, set a floor, not a ceiling, that you couldn't reduce the amount of privacy. So then what the tech industry has been doing now is that they've been going out there and say, oh, people want privacy, so we're going to write the bills. And with uh -huh. all due respect to the people, with all due respect to the people, for example, in Virginia or Utah, those privacy laws were written by the tech companies. And the, the issue is, is that you technically have privacy rights, 
But it is incredible difficult, it's very difficult, incredibly difficult to be able to exercise those privacy rights because it was written in a way slanted to make it very difficult for people to, to take care of them. So you're right that people do, as I said before, people do want privacy, but there are people that would take that word, that expression, and then kind of tip the playing field in the direction more towards the actual businesses versus consumers, right? And I'm very focused on giving consumers additional rights and making it easy for them to exercise the rights. That's the key thing. Yes, well, and thank goodness that you're doing that for sure. But to your point, too, that um, Iowa was one of those who passed the so-called comprehensive. And I say so-called because it's to your point there. They're covering all of the topics that you normally have within a comprehensive law. And to our listeners, you know, that includes like the right to access your data, the right to to review it, to correct it, to take it and move it to another organization and all that. But like here in Iowa, it was pretty much written, as you said, by the organizations that wanted to really control how you could do that. So uh, even though it's called a comprehensive privacy law here in Iowa, there's a lot of loopholes in there that allow for a lot of folks to get access to that data that you might not otherwise want to, you know, get access to it. Yeah, I mean, the problem is, is that the, the exemptions get written for certain types of data, or the other thing is, is that there's actually something called the global privacy control that allows you to send an opt-out signal to the websites you visit, and and it basically sends the message, do not sell or share my data, right? And and uh, the the large tech companies don't like that because that just kind of it's a one and done setting. And they prefer to have consumers have to click on the little boxes and pick the cookies and all that stuff because the average consumer is going to say, who has time for this, right? I am not going to – every time I visit one website, I don't want to spend a minute picking if I want marketing analytics cookies or – you know, or performance cookies, et cetera, people are just going to by default say, okay, fine, load up them cookies on my browser because uh, I want to I want to check the sports score, right? And yes. uh, that's a great example. In California, we do have the Global Privacy Control, or GPC, that sends the opt-out signal on behalf of you via your browser, but yes. they don't allow that in many states. And that's really, yes. that's an example of, of the tech companies writing the laws and shaping the laws as opposed to uh, making it easy for consumers. That's right. And, and let's, it's time right now for a quick break, Tom, but I want to continue this discussion and also get into your Delete Act, too, because that plays right into this. So uh, today I'm discussing how privacy laws are enacted with Tom Kemp co-author of the California Delete Act of 2023 and author of the new book uh, containing Big Tech, How to Protect Our Civil Rights, Economy, and Democracy. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, also through my PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com website. 
Please stay with us. We will be right back after these messages from my sponsors. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today I'm discussing a really fascinating topic, how privacy laws are written and enacted with Tom Kemp, co-author of the California Delete Act of 2023 and author of the new book, Containing Big Tech, How to Protect Our Civil Rights, Economy, and Democracy. And before we went, just right when we were going to break, why Tom was starting to talk about how he was working more with the lawmakers as opposed to before when he was working with more of the groups trying to get an initiative. And Tom, so I understand that's probably for the the California Delete Act of 2023 that you're talking about working, how you're working with the lawmakers. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that act and kind of your tactics that you're taking with, you know, getting that written in a way that's... uh, that truly is privacy friendly? Absolutely. So the, the problem, I mean, with any law, you got to solve a real problem that impacts people on a daily basis. And we, we do have a problem in the United States with groups called data brokers. Mm-hmm. And data brokers are entities that collect data about you, um, but you don't, and they sell it, but you don't have a direct relationship with them. And what's increasingly being happened is that these data from data brokers is being weaponized against us for identity fraud, 
um, or, um, you know, that there's actually been fraud with elderly people, um, that the data brokers have been selling data to fraudsters. The list goes on. And the, the fundamental problem that we have is, is that, first and foremost, we don't even know who these data brokers are because we don't have a direct relationship. And if you do live in one of the 12 states that has a privacy law, you have to go to each and every one of them and say, please delete my data. And in California, we do have a data broker registry. Now, we've in, in the United States, we're now up to four states with data broker registries, California, Vermont, historically. And then I, I actually advised on the group that passed the data broker bill down in registry bill in Texas, and one just passed in Oregon. So you can now see a listing of the data brokers, but it's virtually impossible for anyone to spend all this time and effort to go through the whole list and contact each and every one. And so what my vision is, it's very analogous to the FDC's do not call registry for telemarketers, is that what we need is the ability to go to one website and say, I want to be deleted from data brokers, and all the registered data brokers have to um, take that uh, request and then process it. So it's one and done. You just go there, you register, it's a portal. You say, I want my data deleted, and all the data brokers have to delete it. And that's the Cal- that's basically, in a nutshell, what the California Delete Act is. Uh, it just makes the impossible incredibly easy in terms of bulk deletion from these data brokers that we don't have a direct relationship, and we're, the, we're their products. They don't mm-hmm. sell us a product. We're their products, our personal data, et cetera. And I fundamentally believe that we need to make privacy easy, and the California Delete Act, which is California Senate Bill 362, will be a huge step. This will be the only law like this in the United States if, if we're able to get it to passed. So what I find interesting with bills, and as you probably heard at the beginning of the show, I analyze a lot of them all the time for these quarterly reports, is, you know, with terminology. And so when you have the term data broker, I can just imagine there's going to be groups that are actually, what they're doing would be considered as being a data broker, but they're going to probably try to twist and turn so that they are going to avoid being considered a data broker. So maybe it would be helpful to our listeners. How do you define a data broker then? Is it broad enough where it includes all of those who are trying to wiggle out of being considered one, but yet still you know, defined enough so that others who are doing things that might include gathering data but aren't selling it or whatever wouldn't fall under that definition? Yeah, you know, this is, I mean, it turns out you spend a lot of time just trying to get the definitions right and people are fighting it because one sentence can make or break a bill. Mm -hmm. And the way that we've, we've defined data broker is a business and that definition of business goes back to how a business is defined in the California Privacy Rights Act, which has to be over $25 million, uh, and collect a certain amount of data. And that business is an entity that collects and sells data regarding consumers with which they 
consumers don't have a direct relationship with the business. So that's kind of the definition of data brokers that we've settled on. And it's somewhat consistent between Vermont, between Texas, and Oregon. And the key to this is, at the very minimum, is that we don't have a direct relationship with these entities. So these are, for example, the companies that may uh, put third-party tracking cookies or have hooks into mobile apps that gather your location. That's a huge issue, this, all this location tracking. And, you know, some of these free mobile apps that when you say, oh, do you accept when you install an app and says, we want your location, well, if any third parties have been embedded in this app, they also collect your location as well. But, but you don't have a direct relationship with, with these, with these uh, tech companies that are collecting your uh, location information. And then the other key aspect is, is that they actually sell it and they make some money off your data. So they have an indirect relationship with you. So it's not like Google or Facebook or Walgreens or Walmart. You have direct relationships. These are indirect companies that collect your data and then they sell it. Basically, their business model is to make you and your data the product. They don't sell you a product. And, uh, and that's how we came up with the definition. And, uh, yeah, people complain or they want to, you know, weasel their way out of this, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's a back and forth process. But in the end, we definitely want to have the definition cover the most egregious instances where data brokers are being used for identity theft. Uh, fraud against elderly, you know, tracking people's location in an invasive manner. So we're trying to cover, we're not trying to make it 100% perfect because that's the enemy of good enough. We're trying to make it good enough to capture the most egregious instances and empower consumers to be able to delete their information by hitting a big delete button in the sky. Right, right. Well, this is fascinating. So as you're describing the de- the definition, I'm having uh, different types of organizations come to mind. So it sounds like, I mean, the first types of organizations would be like maybe Spokio or uh, My Life or those type of organizations that, you know, they're always trying to get you to to buy subscriptions so you can go out and find out information about everyone. Are those... Are those data brokers or are those different types of organizations? Yeah, they're, they're, they're basically five different types of data brokers. Okay. The, 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 one, the one that people are most uh, familiar with are these people search sites. So if you were to put your name and your address, then and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my gosh, I show up on 100 websites and I can't believe they have my phone number. They know who my sister is. They knew where I used to live. 20 years ago, et cetera, right? Those are people search websites, um, and, that, uh, and those are data brokers. Another type of data brokers are marketing and advertising, where they segment you into categories like, you know, high-risk borrowers, or they put you into, uh, you know, elderly and uh, middle class, and they segment you, and so then they sell that data to advertisers so that you can be targeted. So that's kind of profiling segmentation for advertising. There's a huge market for health uh, data where that, that, you know, anything that you buy that's over the counter, 
Like if you buy something online at a pharmacy site, like you, you know, itch cream or, uh, you know, you know, this pill or that pill, they'll sell that, right? They won't, they can't sell the information from a pharmacy perspective, but if you buy it actually on a website, um, some medical stuff, or if you do a medical search term, you think you have cancer, you start Googling and visiting websites, um, go collect that information, and they'll put you in a bucket of likely cancer people or likely pregnant people or bedwetters or, or people with depression. They actually have segments of people that they put in the depression bucket, right? And they'll sell that, right? And that's incredibly invasive, to, to, to know that because you did a Google search two years ago about uh, bedwetting or depression or, uh, you know, this type of cancer, that immediately is on your permanent record, and now people are selling that. And the scary thing with data brokers is that oftentimes they know information that your family or friends don't even know about you, that, that they have this complete dossier, and then they sell that information. And so those are the type of data brokers that are there. So it's marketing, it's health, there's location data brokers, uh, et cetera, uh, that, that exist out there. Wow. So, so in this bill, as you're, you've been writing it and you've, been, you've defined the terms, you've established the types of things, you know, the data and so on, but you're working with lawmakers, right? So... Were you compelled, like in the bill as you're writing it, um, were the lawmakers trying to compel you as an author or the other authors to include anything within the bill that you didn't want or didn't support or maybe trying to get you to remove something that was really important for preserving privacy, but yet they still didn't want it in there? Well, well, Luckily, I mean, so the first thing is, is that uh, I've been able to work with some other groups to, to help me, and, and the, the other major other group, so I'm working on this as an individual, but there's another group called the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and they're an excellent resource. They, they've been working very closely with me on this, and so I, I co-authored it with the folks at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and it's been a great partnership. And then uh, I was the one that was able to convince my local state senator, Josh Becker, who's a great guy. He was the one that said, Tom, this is a great idea, and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll move this forward. And, but you're right. What happens is, is that as it, you know, just like the schoolhouse rock, I'm just a bill, it first starts at a subcommittee, then goes to another one and another one, et cetera, there will be lawmakers that say, hey, can you change this? And sometimes they may ask for changes based on what lobbyists for the tech companies or maybe their personal preferences. Um, and so we've been, you know, we've been trying to work with these different groups. And, you know, we have changed the bill in, in certain ways. But trust me, um, I've gone so far with this. I don't want a neutered bill. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have, you know, we have just through the sausage making process, using an expression you used earlier, yes, the bill has been modified. And some of the feedback has really improved it. Some of it's been kind of overtly watering down and you kind of try to work around that, et cetera. But yeah, it's, you know, you have 
these large companies, these data brokers, they have their army of lobbyists that just walk around, and you just have to, like, be sure to be able to sell the, the, the legislatures on the value that this is a real problem. And, and Rebecca, you probably have covered this in past episodes, but data brokers are a huge problem. Um, it's just the amount of data... Uh, that we've become the product. They're just collecting it and selling it, and it's led to a lot of bad things um, that's been happening in terms of the weaponization of our data, and especially, you know, in a, in a uh, post-abortion rights America with the Dobbs decision that stuff that wasn't illegal is now illegal, right? And mm-hmm. so, and the data trail that we all leave behind, uh, you know, can lead to, to problems for us or could be used for discrimination purposes um, in terms of, you know, data. Uh, if a woman's pregnant, someone could just buy it, you know, before they hire someone and say, call up a data broker and say, give me all the data on Rebecca, right, or, or Susie, et cetera, and, see, and tell me if she's, you think she's pregnant, right? And, you know, that's this type of stuff where you can deny people uh, rentals or loans based on data that comes from there. And so we, what I want and what we want with this bill is to finally give consumers the ability to say, no, I want to be able to control who has my data, and I don't want you to have this data for the sole purposes of just selling it like me as a, as a package product. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do with the California Delete Act, Senate Bill 362. Well, it sounds very beneficial, but I can imagine as you've been describing that, I'm wondering, do data brokers, and for, for my listeners out there outside of the U.S., in the U.S., we have what are called political action, I think, committees, PACs, that donate money to different lawmakers for their campaigns and so on. I mean, some of them donate a lot of money. And, uh, and Tom, you can correct me if I didn't get that, um, that acronym correct, but are there any data broker packs that are, I would imagine there would be, that you're kind of fighting against who are, like, donating a lot of money to politicians' campaigns to try to prevent something like the law that you're you wrote this bill for? Well, yeah, they, I mean, individual organizations, uh, businesses will have their own lobbyists that represent them. Then there's industry groups, and then there are uh, political action committees. So there's a full gamut of, of people that are trying to influence policy. Look, we, but, but when you're working closely with uh, Senator Becker, his team, um, you know, we have to be transparent in terms of what we're proposing. Um, we are getting feedback because there may be things that we miss, right? So we'll take feedback um, and we'll we'll incorporate if it as long as it doesn't kind of neuter the the actual bill. But yeah, just like anything in in the anywhere, there, there's people that uh, you know look at it from a dollars and cents perspective. And if your business model, look. I mean, people say, hey, we're now in a digital age where we're a data-driven economy, right? And Mm -hmm. that's fine. I've historically been a tech CEO, and I understand innovation. I understand the value of data. I understand AI is increasingly consuming more and more data. But if that data includes 
sensitive personal information about me, and I live in a state like California where I have privacy rights, then I should actually have the right to say no, or I should have the right to delete. But the fundamental problem is, in the case of data brokers, we don't even know who they are, and it's virtually impossible for any consumer to try to contact 500, 600, 700 data brokers one by one and say, please delete my information. And so we're just trying to make it easier for people to be able to exercise the rights because it's virtually impossible for people to get their data deleted. And if you're like, another example, if you're like a survivor of domestic violence, you don't want your new address on 100 websites, right? Right. You know, if you're a if you're a police officer or a judge or a county official and there are people mad about the decisions that you've made, you don't want to be doxxed, right? You don't want to have your personal information on the internet so people could could attack you or or visit at your home or threaten your family, right? Those are real issues, right? And we think that consumers should have rights um, and the current way that things are set up, it's virtually impossible to exercise those rights if you have to visit 500 different websites. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, gosh, I'm looking at the clock. We've already, we, the, the, this hour has been going so quickly. So you're covering a lot of really good things. I know that our listeners are probably thinking, you know, what kind of tactics can they take if they have an idea for something they're passionate about? that they want to have a law for or a specific privacy issue, maybe some mistakes to avoid. So, you know, from what I hear, I mean, I haven't read it yet because I, you know, we're, my listeners know that we record ahead of time. So I don't think your new book's out yet, but does your new book containing big tech, does that cover a lot of these topics in depth to give like advice to those reading it? It, it absolutely does. The, the book provides advice both for consumers, how you can reduce your data footprint, right? How you can stop uh, third-party trackers from collecting information. So I try to provide suggestions for us as individuals, but I also provide uh, kind of a roadmap for policymakers. And my recommendation is if you're very passionate about privacy, you want to see improvements of privacy, clearly, you know, reach out to your, your, your local legislatures, uh, you know, your state senators, your, your state assembly people, et cetera, and say, hey, I'm really concerned about this. But also, there are civil society groups that do focus on privacy, um, and, and, and maybe you know someone that works at one of these, or you can reach out and, and say, hey, I, I see you're a group that focuses on privacy rights. You know, what are you doing? Can I volunteer? Can I help, et cetera? And so through this process with the Senate Bill 362 in California, which did pass the state Senate, we're now kind of winding our way through the assembly. California has a later, kind of a, a longer uh, legislative period than, than many states, which tend to only be three or four or five months. California goes for nine, ten months. So we're oh. still in the midst of trying to get this passed. But mm-hmm. yeah, there are, you know, fine groups that you can partner with and, and work with as well. Um, but, but the book absolutely gives advice for both consumers and policymakers 
on specific things we can do to not only improve privacy, but also how we can pr- start putting some guardrails up for, for AI as well. So, yeah, so let's say, you know, somebody has an idea, like something that concerns me a lot and is be- has been a huge problem here in Iowa is the use of, uh, like, air tags and other types of digital trackers being used to stalk women by men. And, and those trackers, to be fair, they can be used by anybody to, to track anyone else, right? doesn't matter what sex you are, gender, anything like that. But here in Iowa, that's the, the trend right now. So let's say somebody wanted to have a law that would establish rules for these digital trackers or other types of Internet of Things, what would you advise? Like, call up your lawmaker, write them a letter. Um, I guess this will be kind of our last, um, you know, question here, too, because we got about four minutes left. But what would be the advice you'd give folks to get in touch with their lawmakers? Does the phone work better? Writing a good old-fashioned letter, you know, paper letter, email? I think the best thing to do is that oftentimes these, your, your state senators, your state assembly people, they'll have local meetings, you know, coffees and meet and greets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it's, it's best to kind of meet with people face to face and say, hey, you know, I have this concern. What are your thoughts on about this? What do you think about legislation? And kind of feel them out in terms of what they think about, ah. but then also, but there also may be groups, um, like civil society groups in your state that, you know, care a lot about, you know, so for example, uh, you know, these trackers, it's probably to, you know, harass and, and track women. So they're probably groups that are domestic violence survivor groups that you should reach out to them and say, you know, wouldn't this be a good idea for legislation to reduce the amount of domestic violence or stalking, et cetera? So you got to work civil society groups, but you also need to get face-to-face in these coffees or town halls and say, what do you think about this? Um, and oftentimes, legislatures legislators are looking for ideas, and they love to point back that this was a constituent that recommended it. Um, and so just, you know, get, press the flesh, get the FaceTime, but then also figure out what groups could, could also support your ideas. Wonderful. Well, and yeah, so even in our digital world, it's still most effective to be in person because it's harder to have to ignore someone who's right there in front of you in a room, right? Absolutely. Well, uh, do you have, I'll give you, we have like 30 seconds. Is there one big point you want to give about either your bill or your book or anything else before we go here? No, I, 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 well, yeah, actually the answer is yes. Uh, So my (laughs) book, um, you know, I wrote it for, you know, the average person to kind of connect the dots about digital surveillance, about privacy, about artificial intelligence. And not only am I focusing on, here. here are the issues, but I also wanted to provide solutions as well for not only for policymakers, but us as individuals. So I certainly would, you know, recommend, you know, checking out my book. Uh, It's Tom Kemp containing big tech. And, uh, 
and uh, and of course you can also people can reach me directly just through my website tomkemp.ai wonderful thank you for being my guest today i really appreciate it good stuff Today, I've been discussing how privacy laws are enacted with Tom Kemp, co-author of the California Delete Act of 2023 and also author of the new book, Containing Big Tech. And I hope you found this information interesting and useful. And did you take any actions from the information we provided on this show? Let us know. I always like to know if people actually are motivated to take actions after we talk about these types of topics. Um, If you have anything that you want to share, any comments, you can send me your information, your thoughts at Rebecca uh, to my email, Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHarold.com. If you cannot make our scheduled debut show each month, you can listen to all the recordings of all my shows going way back to the beginning and on your favorite news app or on the website, voiceamerica.com, the business channel website. Until our next show, be privacy laws aware, be cybersecurity savvy, and speak up when you feel you need to about the need for new laws. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.